Well, this is exactly how I envisioned this moment beginning. Um, with all of you at home looking at a screen and seeing me, and with me looking out and seeing nobody. Um, it is a tremendous joy to be here with you today. I put here in quotes, uh, to be together gathered as we're scattered across the city and the region. It's a joy to have followed Jesus to this point in my life and ministry, and as well, I think, in the church's life and history to come now to this convergence. Uh, it's a joy to be here. And though this isn't what I would have hoped for, nor any of you would have hoped for, uh, I trust that God will work through this strange beginning and that he will be honored and glorified as we move forward together. I have great hope for what he has in store for us. I'd like to invite you to pray with me as we begin, and then we'll begin to open up God's word together. Great God Almighty, we worship you and we praise you this morning. You alone are God. There is no one like you. And you have said that you will share your glory with no other. We worship you and glorify you and magnify your name. God, you are on the throne, even though we are struggling in this moment. And we acknowledge that you are reigning and ruling, that you have not for one moment lost the control of the situation, that you have not for one moment taken your eyes off of our lives. We are your sheep. You are our shepherd. God, in this moment, we pray that your spirit would come into our homes, our living rooms, our studies, and that you would calm our hearts. We desperately need you, always, but especially in this moment. We need you, O oh God, to be gracious in opening up your word to us. We need you to feed us and to nourish us with the solid food of your scriptures. God, we need you to speak to our fears we need you to rebuke our pride. Lord, we need you to overcome our barriers, our disunity. And even though we're spread apart, to draw us together in your Son. We attend to you, O Lord. Speak, we pray. Make your name great, we pray. Give to us your peace. Be glorified. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior, the glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I'd like to draw your attention this morning to the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 3, verse 30, where he says, he must increase, I must, but I must decrease. These words depict the cry of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus. They're foundational and essential to the life of faith. To attempt to follow Jesus without this, this disposition is like setting out on the wrong path at the start of a hike. It doesn't matter how hard you hike, how much you work, 
how much effort you expend, you'll never end up in the right place if you don't begin on the, or walk on the right path. And there is no other path for the Christian than the path that John has laid out for us here. He must increase, but I must decrease. And this is where I want to begin with all of you in this ministry as I take up this role of serving as your senior minister. We'll expound these words and then consider the heart behind them in just a moment. But first, I I want to acknowledge that we're beginning together under challenging circumstances, circumstances that few of us could have imagined even just a few weeks ago. I, I brought along a visual, the cover of The Economist from last week has this picture of earth with a closed sign hanging over the earth. And the cover article in this uh, magazine begins, Planet Earth is Shutting Down. Yes, it's a bit dramatic, but there's certainly a a sense in which all of us can identify with and feel what they're trying to communicate as we struggle to adjust with a disruption that most of us have never encountered in our lives before. And we're asking a lot of questions, real questions, questions that are human questions. Will I be okay? Will I get sick and die? Will my parents or my grandparents or those whom I love who are immunocompromised, will they be okay? Will my business make it through the present nature of things in the economy that seems a bit out of control? Will I have a job next week? And maybe a little less seriously or maybe not, will I be able to survive another week with my spouse and children or my roommates trapped in our house together with nowhere to go? There are many uncertainties, of course, and none of us, not world leaders, not pastors, not doctors, have the answers that we all want. None of us can give the certainty about this particular situation that all of us desire and are looking for. So how, when planet Earth is closed, do we live faithfully? Or let me ask it in a slightly different, different way. What might it look like to live through this pandemic Christianly? Among many other good suggestions, let me offer two to you this morning as we begin. First, we hold fast the affirmation that God is here, that God is over this moment, in this moment, and working through this moment to the glory of his name. And that means as well that God is with us. God never promises that we will not be in the valley of the shadow of death. God promises that when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, that he will be with us in the midst of it. It's his presence, and God is present now as much as he was before this pandemic, as much as he was 20 years ago and 2,000 years ago, and as much as he will be on into the future. His presence is our chief comfort at all times, but especially when we're in the valley. And that means now, when our lives have been turned upside down, he is here, he is present, he is working, and he holds the world, even the closed planet Earth, in his sovereign hands. My question is, are our eyes fixed on him? Are we we looking at him? Do we see him in his reign and rule? Or perhaps, are they like Peter, so focused on the wind and the waves, maybe even obsessed with the wind and the waves around us? that we begin to sink. Second, and at the same time that we make this affirmation that God is here, that God is present, we also lament. We acknowledge and we are honest about the pain and the anxiety and the sense of threat that haunts us in our world right now. 
We acknowledge the frustration and the difficulty and the loss caused by this present disruption. We acknowledge our sadness over hospitals that are being overwhelmed and a death toll that continues to climb because of COVID-19. And we, we bring these realities before the living God in prayer. That is what lament is. Lament is bringing the brokenness and pain of our world and of our lives before God. And it's important that we see that the cry of lament is not a movement away from the affirmation of faith that I just mentioned, but it is actually precisely the expression of that faith in a moment of trial. As an address to God, lament is an acknowledgement that God is our great hope, our great need. Lament is largely and sadly a lost voice in today's church, but it is alive and well in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. And this pandemic is inviting us to rediscover this important voice of faith. Lament, be, lament must be a part of our response to all that we're living through right now. It's not the only response, of course, but it is a key part of our faithful response. The lament psalms are quite helpful here. And you might consider reading Psalm 42 or Psalm 43 or 22, or 7, or 13. So many of the psalms are psalms of lament, some individual laments, some communal laments. But turn to the psalms. In the memorable words of David Taylor, who's doing some present work on the psalms, he says, the psalms give us edited language for our unedited emotions. Edited language for our unedited emotions. So turn to them for help. Lament, and specifically the lament psalms, relate to our passage this morning in this way. They always include a cry for God, for more of God, for God to draw near, for God to make his purposes more prominent in our present world. And while John the Baptist is obviously not lamenting in our passage today, he longs for what the psalmist longs for, for more of God to be made manifest in his life and world, for God to be made more prominent. John's language for this, of course, is he must increase. That's the ESV translation, and here I prefer it to the NIV, which has he must become greater, because really Jesus can't become any greater than he already is. He must increase. The early church fathers understood John's words in this verse to communicate something like the increase and, de and decrease of the light of celestial bodies. We all know, at least when we're not in Boston and can hardly see any stars, that as the sun rises, the light of the stars begins to fade away. The greater light overtakes the lesser light. He must increase. That's the cry of faith, and it's relevant in any and every circumstance in our lives, but especially in the midst of a pandemic. Jesus, let your light shine. Let your light shine more brilliantly and more brightly. Increase more and more and more. And this is the cry of my heart for my ministry among all of you and for our ministry together in this wonderful city of Boston and to the ends of the earth, that Jesus may increase, that he may shine more brightly and he may be lifted up above all so that many, many people may come to see him and find life in him. 
And so that we who already see him and love him may see him even more brilliantly and clearly having our lives and aims and affections properly ordered and seen in the light of his glory. Lord, increase in prominence, increase in influence, increase in healing, increase in bringing about transformation, increase in receiving praise, increase in rule, Lord Jesus, your will be done. But John continues, I must decrease. His disciples weren't ready for that twist, and often we aren't either. They come to him in verse 26 of our text and complain, Rabbi, everybody's going to Jesus. It's a bit like saying, hey, we have this great restaurant. Everybody was coming to enjoy our food. And then somebody came up and set up a restaurant across the street. And now everybody's going there for dinner. We're not happy about that. They see Jesus as a rival, a threat to their identity, which was rooted in being at the center of the action. And I think if we're honest, we can really identify with these disciples of John as well. William James once remarked that mankind's common instinct for reality has always held the world to be a theater for heroism. Mankind's common instinct for reality has always held the world to be essentially a theater for heroism. I think that's largely true. In one form or another, we tend to want to be the hero. A quick story to illustrate that, my son Jameson is now 11, but when he was four years old, we used to take him to a community gym for some gym classes to get some of his seemingly endless energy out. And he'd be in a session with the kids, about 10 other kids or so in the gym class, and the first thing that the teacher would have them do is to run the length of the gym there and back. And God made my son fast. And so when he began to run, he would be way out in front of all the other kids. And it was ridiculous. But as he was out front, he would start to put his head on a swivel and look back over both shoulders while running as fast as he could just to size up where he was in relation to the competition. One wonders if that kind of running ever stops, really. It's no longer running across the gym for us. But we're building businesses and organizations and churches, and families, and an online presence, and on and on. And all of these things are good in and of themselves, just like running fast is, can be. But, but I fear that a lot of us in doing these things have our head on a swivel. We're looking around. We're sizing up the competition. We're trying to figure out if we're good enough, if we're out in front, if we're better than the next guy, however that might be defined. We want to shine. And even though this can be subtle sometimes, when we dig deeper, we, we often want to be the one who's at the center, the one on whom everyone else needs to depend. If that's our heart, then our creed will be, I must increase, but he must decrease. That should sound familiar to many of us, taking us back to the first human couple in the garden long ago. How were they tempted by the serpent? With the promise of increase. You will be like God if you eat the fruit of this tree, the serpent said. But this increase required that God be decreased. It never doesn't. That his word be disregarded. That's always the way of sin. Become more by making God less. 
John's response is vastly different from his disciples, culminating in these words, he must increase, but I must decrease. And how he gets there is something that I want to explore with you in our time remaining this morning, so that we too might be marked by this heart. That's my greatest longing, that this would mark Park Street Church, our ministry together, on into the future, this creed of John the Baptist. John's vision for lifting up Jesus comes by having a heart that sees. And because he sees, then a heart that surrenders with joy. A heart that sees, and because he sees, then a heart that surrenders with joy. So first, a heart that sees. John sees two things, rightly, two critical things. First, he sees that he is not the Messiah. He says this twice in the opening chapters of John's gospel. Here in verse 28, as he reminds his disciples, you yourselves bear me witness, he says, that I said, I am not the Christ. And he's pointing back to his interrogation by the priests and the Levites in the opening words of John's gospel after the prologue, when they asked him, who are you, John? And he answered in chapter 1, verse 20, I am not the Christ. Several weeks ago, when I told Nathan Skinner, our director of music, that I would be preaching on this text for my first sermon with you, he told me that my predecessor, Gordon Hugenberger, preached from this text on the day that he announced his retirement, June 5th, 2016, and that when he did so, he had you all repeat these words of John the Baptist numerous times, I am not the Christ. I, of course, didn't know that when I landed on this text for my first sermon with you, And to me, it's just another indication of the Spirit's work in this entire transition. And it's clear that God wants us, Park Street Church, to hear this message, obviously. We are not the Christ. Not you, not the elders, not me, not any other pastors or leaders in our community, and not our church collectively. We are not the Christ. It is so easy, though, for us to forget this. And I think sometimes it's easiest for pastors to forget this. We are called into this vocation, hopefully, because we care, because we love God and we love people, because we want to see God glorified and people made whole. But we can get busy in those efforts and begin to blur the line between Messiah and servant of the Messiah. That will manifest itself in a growing, in a a number of things, prayerlessness and over-reliance upon our own gifts A growing inability to listen to those who disagree with us or provide criticism. And a greater dependence upon managerial and leadership books rather than upon the word of God. And many other ways as well. So I'd like to make a deal with you at the outset of my ministry among you. If you ever see me acting like I think I am the the Christ, you have my permission to grab me by the shoulders to look me in the eyes and to say to me with enthusiasm, Mark, you are not the Christ. Conversely, if I ever see any of you treating me like I am the Christ, then I promise to stop you, look you in the eye and say to you, I am not the Christ. Stop it. Of course, what I apply to myself in this moment and to pastors applies to all of us. We are all prone to forget that we are not the Messiah. In one way or another, we're all prone to believing that we are, that we are our own savior. That makes us overworked, overworried, oversupplied, overafraid, especially in the midst of a pandemic. 
We think we have to save ourselves, to protect ourselves, to provide for ourselves. And of course, we must be wise following the best advice and protocols that were given from doctors and, and, and government officials to protect ourselves and to protect others. But even as we do so, we must remember that our ultimate protection comes not from these things, but from the Lord, who protects far more than just our bodies. He is our keeper. He is the Christ, and we are not. So in addition to seeing clearly that John the Baptist, seeing clearly that he's not the Messiah, he also sees the true identity of Jesus as the Messiah. So back in chapter 1, verse 29, when he meets Jesus for the first time, he exclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And a few verses later in verse 34 of chapter 1, he says, and I've seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Son of God was an Old Testament term used for Israel generally, and more specifically for Israel's anointed king, the Messiah, the Christ. We see that in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, among other places. But for Christians, this term, Son of God, began to carry an unthinkable freight, pointing to the fact that this Messiah shared in the divine identity. How fully John understood this in this moment remains conjecture, but he knew some things very deeply. He knew that Jesus ranked before him because he was before him. So he seems to grasp this overwhelming reality in at least seed form when he meets Jesus. We, of course, as readers of the Gospel of John, we get to see this with crystal clarity clarity from the very beginning because of the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No one has ever seen the Father, but God, who is at the, the, the Word, God, who is at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known. He is the Word who is with God and who was God. He is the one from above, from heaven, the one who is above all. John's gospel is concerned deeply with this question of the identity of Jesus. Who is he? If you read through the whole gospel, you'll see that again and again, the authorities from Jerusalem are asking this question, well, where did he come from? We don't know where he came from. And again and again, the answer of the gospel is this Jesus came from above. He came from heaven. If we were to continue our text into verses 31 and following, we'd see that he, the one who is from heaven, is above all. He is over all. He has come from a different place to rescue us in this place. He is the embodiment. Jesus is the embodiment of God's long-promised return to his people. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the King. And this is the one that John the Baptist sees so clearly. Do you see him? He sees Jesus as the sin bearer. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember what John's whole ministry had been about. The reason he was dressed up in those funny clothes and going out and doing baptisms by the Jordan is because it was about sin. We read in Luke's gospel that he was proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John knew the big deal that sin was. He knew that sin was the great problem of the world and that sin, we know that sin remains even in the face of COVID-19, the great problem of our day. Sin diminishes life, it enslaves life and enslaves us, and it ends in death and proper final judgment. And John, when he sees Jesus, sees the one who can deliver us from all of this, from our bondage, as the prophets had promised. Here's the one whose work can give us a new heart. 
can take away our heart of stone and and give us a heart of flesh, who can make us what we were always meant to be, who can give us the life that we've always longed to have. Here's the one who can quench our thirst, who can bring us rest and peace and joy. Here is the great physician, the only one who can truly heal. And he will do so as the lamb. John has insight into this from the very beginning. He understands that this king would not rule by an iron fist, but that he would rule by taking up a Roman cross. That he would bring about his healing and transformative power. That he would give us a new heart and a new spirit by by virtue of his own love that poured his own life out on a cross that he didn't deserve. John sees Jesus clearly. I wonder if, if we do as well. Do we see what John sees? Do we know that we're not the Christ? Do we see our limitations? And in many ways, this pandemic, in one sense, is helping us all to see this, to see what we cannot do, to see just how fickle we are, how dependent we are on certain comforts or rhythms or routines, as those have been disrupted in significant ways. Many of us are probably overwhelmed with our own lack of patience, our own ease of anger with kids around the house that normally aren't there. Do you see him? The reigning, ruling king. You might say, well, John got to see him in the flesh. I don't know. How do I get to see him? Perhaps you're there and you're wondering about this Jesus and you're asking questions about what it means to follow him. How might you see him? I want to assure you that we can still encounter him and see him because Jesus is a living king. The Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world died on a Roman cross, but he rose again, as we'll look at in a couple of weeks together on that great celebration of Easter. We can start with his word. If you're searching, if you're wrestling with life, And with this pandemic and wondering, where do I turn? Let me encourage you to turn to the Bible. To turn to these words that we read in Timothy's, in the letter to Timothy, are God-breathed. These words which present to us a faithful and true depiction of Jesus. The word made flesh. You will see him there. And we can turn to his people, to the church, for there you should see him. Maybe not always, because we're oftentimes quite a mess. But we're to see Jesus in the joy of his people, in their love for one another, in their compassion for those who are in need, in their welcome and their hospitality, in their peace in in the midst of trial. Remember what Jesus calls us, the church. We are his temple. And remember who dwells in the temple the Lord of glory. John, toward the end of his life, was in exile on the island Patmos. We asked, where did he see Jesus at that point? And I mean John the gospel writer, not John the Baptist. And we read in Revelation 1, in this most beautiful account of a vision of Jesus, the glorified and risen king and ruling king, a vision that we desperately need in the moment that we're living through right now. John, we read in Revelation 1, was in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
He had come to gather, perhaps with the other believers that were in exile with him on Patmos. They had come to gather for a service of the word and of the table. They had come to gather to meet with him and to pray. And, and John, in that moment, gets a vision of the glory of Jesus and sees him in all of his radiance and beauty and power. Gather with God's people. And Jesus will make himself known. So John sees... He has a heart that sees. But secondly, and finally, his seeing leads to a surrender with joy. Because he sees, he surrenders with joy. Look at verse 27 with me. John says to his disciples, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given, from, from heaven, given him from heaven. And in verse 28, he reminds his disciples that he was sent before Jesus. He is not the Messiah. I was sent before him. As he said in chapter 1, verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John knew his role, and he received it, and he submitted and surrendered to it. It is admittedly a lesser role than his disciples wanted him to have. They wanted John the Baptist, their, their leader, to be the bridegroom. But John says in verse 29 that he's only the friend of the bridegroom. His job was to prepare the festivities. But when the bridegroom arrived, when the bridegroom showed up to take the bride, his job was to get out of the way. How ridiculous it would be if the best man at a wedding kept getting in the middle of all the pictures, took the first bite of the wedding cake, and had the first dance on the dance floor. John knew his role. His disciples are upset that people are going to Jesus, but John's not upset at all. He surrenders to the lesser role that God gave him. I wonder if we surrender in a similar fashion to the role that God has given us to play, not the role of Messiah, not the hero, not the savior, but the servant and the witness. All of us like John are called to bear witness to Jesus. Sure, for some, this role may not be what you want in your life right now. It may not be much fun. It may feel like you're stuck in a dead end and trapped. And I don't want to be misunderstood to be saying that if you're stuck, there's anything wrong with seeking something new, with seeking change. I would simply caution us as we do so by saying that that seeking of change is to be engaged in obedience to Jesus and not in an ill-fated attempt to somehow displace Jesus by trying to seek satisfaction and rest and peace and joy out of a new career or a new relationship or a new set of circumstances. All of these things are, our world tells us are the ways in which we will find fulfillment, but they won't. Only Jesus will. Of course, if your circumstances involve you in danger and threaten you, by all means, seek a way out and tell others in the church, and we will work hard with you to make that change. That is our calling to be a people who work for justice and for the care of those who are in situations of threat and danger and pain. But if the situation that you're in is just not something that you prefer, that's a different story. The call here is to receive what God has given and then to do that which he has given in a manner that is faithful to him. I remember a, a many years ago, a few years into church planting here in Boston, I was at a low point. I was frustrated. I was feeling discouraged. I'm sure that'll never happen at Park Street Church. Um, and I called a mentor of mine and told him about it. 
And after my soliloquy of self-pity ended, he said somewhat surprisingly, you know, Mark, it's only going to get worse. And I thought, oh, that's great advice or that's great encouragement. But he had been a pastor for 40 plus years and he had been in the trenches. And so then I asked him, so what should I do? And he simply said to me, be faithful. So of course I asked, well, what does it mean to be faithful? And his answer was so helpful. Do the next thing that you're supposed to do and do it well. It was great advice and it was just what I needed to hear. And you may be sitting there at home wondering how you're supposed to live on this closed planet, cooped up in your home and cut off from everyone. What does God want from you? Faithfulness. Surrender to what he has given to you. Again, that's so different for all of us, but we have what we have, as John says, because it's been given to us from above. So whether your, your next thing is cooking dinner, teaching children, balancing the budget, taking an exam, checking in on a friend next door, or reporting to work because you're an essential worker, it's something that has been given to you by God, and you're called to do it and do it well. Whatever you do, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.30, do all to the glory of God. As we do these things, even the most mundane things, faithfully and as an act of worship to him, he will use that to glorify himself and to build his life in us. There's one little nugget in this text that I don't want to leave behind, and it's in verse 24. It's just a parenthetical comment for the, the gospel writer here in John 3. For John had not yet been put in prison. Do we recognize where the forerunner of Jesus' surrender went, took him? It took him to prison and to beheading. If John, the forerunner, the great prophet, the one of whom Jesus said, no one has ever been born of woman that is greater than he. If John could have his life end there, then what about you and me? The surrender of John to the will of God took him to a place where he did not want to go and led him to an end that he did not want to face. And we all need to wrestle with that reality and take instruction from the lives of so many faithful Christians who have followed a similar path as John and done so in the same way that John did, saying he must increase, but I must decrease. John surrenders to the living King, to the Messiah. And he does so with joy. His surrender is not a begrudging surrender. It's not, well, I guess it's okay that all those people are going to Jesus to be baptized, but I can handle it. This is the rule God gave me. No, no, no. John gives us a far different picture, a picture of an exuberant faith because he sees. There's a tremendous joy for John. And the joy for John is that Jesus is now in the place that Jesus is supposed to be. Jesus is with the bride. Jesus is with the people. The people are coming out to him. And John has great joy like the friend of the bridegroom. When the, bri when the groom arrives and is with the bride, the bridegroom recedes into the background and enjoys the party because things are as they ought to be. Jesus is with his people. His surrender to what God had given him was a surrender marked by joy. What then could be the source of our joy in the midst of this pandemic? What could enable us to embody what John embodies, to take up the creed that John professes? He must increase, but I must decrease. With great joy, it is that we know that Jesus is in the place that Jesus is supposed to be. Well, where is that, you might ask? And I would say Jesus is at the Father's right hand, on the throne room of heaven, ruling over everything that we're facing in the world today. 
sovereign, glorious, reigning, compassionate, humble, meek, and mild. And because Jesus is in the proper place, Jesus is on the throne, Jesus is where he is supposed to be, we might have tremendous joy in yielding to his sovereign will in our present circumstances, whatever those circumstances may be. And we might serve him with joy, with hearts that are overflowing. Our joy, that is to say, does not come from being in circumstances that we like or that we would have chosen. Our joy is rooted in the fact that Jesus is in the place that he belongs with the people in John's case. And in our case, crucified, resurrected, ascended, and seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over every last inch of this closed planet Earth. Over every last moment of your life and of mine. So in this circumstance, one which none of us would have chosen, It is deeply possible for us as people of faith to have tremendous joy. You know, one small example of that from a woman or a young girl that none of you have probably heard of, the story of Eliza Cunningham. She was the niece of John Newton, the writer of the hymn that we sang earlier, that we all, many of us at least, know, Amazing Grace. Her father two siblings and her mother had died of tuberculosis and she herself was gravely ill when she moved in with her uncle John in 1783. And John Newton began to teach this young girl at the age of 12 the way of Christ, the way of faith, the way of John the Baptist. Two years later, at the age of 14, growing weaker and weaker, she chooses her own funeral sermon Revelation 14, verse 3, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. She prays with a friend and a cousin in her final days and then tells them, see how comfortable the Lord can make a dying bed. And in her last moments, as Newton prayed with her at her bedside, her last words were these, I am ready to say, why are his chariot wheels so long in coming? But I hope he will enable me to wait his hour with patience. Here's a bereaved young girl whose family was taken away from her because of tuberculosis and whose own life was slipping out of her hands, but because she saw Jesus reigning and ruling, crucified and resurrected, sovereign and powerful and gracious and good, a a God who would take life and make it whole and make it last long beyond the grave because she saw him. Even as she was staring death in the face, she rejoiced in him. To her dying days, she was able to say with John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. One day this pandemic will go past. It will move by. And I pray that on that day, we will be able to look back, Park Street Church, and say that we walked through this pandemic as people who were marked by the creed of John the Baptist, who said, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is the moment, this is the time for us to exercise that radical and deep faith that allows us to have joy as we surrender to circumstances that we would rather not be in and give glory to the Jesus who reigns and rules over them all. He must increase, but I must decrease. Come what may, pandemic, economic ruin, 
sickness, illness, hardship. Come what may, Jesus, you are on the throne. You must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you to make these words not merely words, but a confession of the heart. I pray, Lord, that every man and woman and child that calls Park Street Church home would be marked by this statement of John the Baptist, that our heart's desire would be to see you, the the enthroned one, increase, become more prominent. And at the same time that we, like John, would decrease. Forgive us, O God, when we want control. Forgive us when we want to be at the center. Forgive us when we think we're the Messiah. And we thank you that you are the Messiah. Come to forgive, come to save, come to heal, come to rescue, come to transform, come near to those who are in the deepest places of need, those in hospital rooms all alone right now. Lord, be their their shepherd. Draw near to them. Those who are working with the sick in hospitals around the globe, protect them, draw near to them, build them up. And Lord, may your church rise up in this moment and bear witness to the joy that is possible in all circumstances. Be glorified, we pray. As we set on in this journey together, we ask that you would increase and that we would decrease. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.